Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everybody. Hello, hello. Kind of a heavy, heavy passage today, huh? So the title of the message today is called Fighting for Fame or Fighting Sin? Are we fighting for fame, for status, or are we fighting the sin in our lives? And I think we often find ourselves fighting the wrong battle because of a lack of humility. You ready to talk about humility versus pride today? There's going to be a lot of that. When I think of humility, if you had to go to one, two verses in the Bible, where would you go? I would go to Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4. So when you're thinking about what is humility, think about these two verses. I have a slide here for you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. So humility is not thinking too much about ourselves or even little about ourselves, which, in, which can also draw attention, woe is me, I'm terrible, but instead thinking about ourselves less, thinking about others, valuing other people and their interests as, lo- as well as our own. I'm guessing in your life you've seen many examples of humility, and I've seen many of them as well, but I'm going to tell you two, two quick ones, both of which when I was a freshman in school. So the first was when I was a freshman in high school, and when I was a freshman in high school, there was a big divide between freshmen and seniors. There was a big question of status. The freshmen were always supposed to carry the bags, do the equipment, do the dirty work, all that. When I was a freshman, I joined the soccer team. I wasn't very good at it, hadn't played much. And the first week of practice, I strained my my quad, my my hamstring. And and I was was hurting a bit. And one of the juniors on the team named Michael, first practice, or first week of practices, went into his bag, got a compression brace for, for a hamstring, and he let me use it for the week. And that has always stuck out to me, that an older kid on the team would help out and think about helping out one of the younger kids that wasn't even good at the sport. It was a humble act of service. One more example, when I was a freshman in college, I was on the baseball team, and there was a junior named John that would always, always, always clean up the sport, the team equipment before his own equipment. After every game in practice, John would be the first one out. He'd just always be cleaning up the helmets, the bats, everything, before he would get to to organizing his own stuff. And that always stuck out to me. He would think about the team first. He would help the team before his own interests. And so you might be thinking, those aren't very extravagant examples. And that's part of the point of humility. Humility isn't focused on ourselves or think ourselves superior to others, but values others and their interests. And here's something really important. The kind of humility that the Lord talks about in Scripture, childlike humility that we just heard read and we'll elaborate, is not something we can conjure up on our own. It's not an attitude that you can put on. It's actually a status that God gives to his people. It's something that comes from the Lord. The one who embraced humility his entire life while he was dying on the cross, conquering sin, he submitted himself to the Father and said, Lord, I commit my spirit into your hands, into your hands. 
I commit my spirit, my soul. That kind of humility that God can give to us through the Lord. And so when we, when we look at the passage today in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9, we have three points for our roadmap. First, we see the pursuits of the world in verses 1 to 4. Secondly, some of the promises of God's kingdom, both a positive promise and a, and a warning in verses 5 to 6. And then finally, that the path to life involves a fight, and those are found in verses 7 through 9. So that's, that's where we're going today. So first of all, the pursuits of the world. In those first four verses, I won't reread them because we just heard them, but here's what I see in the first four verses, that people will pursue status. That's what we're going to do innately. We're going to pursue fame, status, power. We're going to pursue status. But kingdom people, according to Jesus, are to embrace humility. People pursue status. Just look at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So here's the context. It wasn't, it wasn't long before the disciples are asking him this question, after Jesus just told them for the second time that he would be crucified, killed, and then raised from the dead. And if you look back just four verses ago, they were greatly distressed because they heard that Jesus just said he's going to have to die and then be raised from the grave. They were distressed. But it didn't take long after hearing some, some stressful news of self-sacrifice that they're now asking, how do I get mine? How do I, how do I become the great? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And before we throw them under the bus, how often do we hear about the gospel of our God and King who gave himself for us, who calls us to care and to love about other people, and then an hour later or the next day we're thinking, how can I live in the way that best suits and benefits my life alone? How often do we do that? <laughs> They're asking him this question, who's the greatest? What is fueling that question? It's pride. Now, if humility is thinking about ourselves less, valuing other people and their interests, Pride is thinking all about ourselves. Pride is an excessively high opinion about ourselves. It's when we elevate ourselves, and you know what happens often when you elevate yourself? You push other people down. That's part of, that's part of the ways of pride that builds ourselves, ourselves up, just ourselves. We're pushing other people down in the process. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about pride. He said, pride is essentially competitive, it gets no pleasure out of having something, only, only out of having more of it than the next person. I'm going to say that one again. Pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. Here's an example that I still find just really funny. People will have pride about how tall they are. How hard did you work to be tall? Did you wake up every day for three months or a year and just go, I'm going to grow two inches or something? And we, we put value on people because of some inches or a foot whatever taller they are than somebody else. And they might not even be proud that they're tall compared to the sky, how tall are you? <laughs> but compared to other people, somehow there's a measure of pride in that. We can, we can fill in so many examples. Not even necessarily proud that you have money, you just have more than the next person. Not necessarily proud of your, your kid, but you're proud in comparison with that, other, with that other kid. Fill in the blank, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. It's a comparison game where we can't appreciate talent, success, beauty, 
creativity in, in, in and of themselves, but only compared to other people when we're always thinking about ourselves. And do you know how that ends? In one of two ways. When we can't appreciate beauty, success, talent, creativity, and we're always thinking about ourselves when we see those things in other people, guess how that ends? One in two ways. The first one is egotism. Ah, I see that you are, have success in this way and have this kind of job that you, that you enjoy or this attractive or this much money, but I have more of that or I'm better at that. And so ego raises the ego. That's one way it ends. The second one is envy where you notice, okay, they have more of that thing. They're better at that, at that thing. Fill in the blank. And we end with, I want that. We can't appreciate it for it. We can't appreciate the person. No, no, no. I have to have that. I have to have more of that. It ends in envy. And here's what Proverbs 14 verse 30 says about envy. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy rots the bones. <laughs> a tranquil, a peaceful heart Content with what the Lord has given to us and who we are and growing in those things. A tranquil, a peaceful heart gives life to the flesh, but envy will rot the bones. And you know what? It's a daily choice we make. Are we going to live the life where we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people? Are you going to keep playing the comparison game every day of your life? Or will you live that life of humility that God can grant to us. Us focused, others focused. Paul Miller in his book, A Loving Life, based on the book of Ruth, says, are you going to live a life of a thousand lives or a life that shatters into a thousand pieces? And here's what he meant by that. When you're investing in, caring in, interested, valuing other people, you can in one sense live a thousand lives through them, caring about them, or you make it all about yourself, at the end of it all, inevitably ending in tragedy, you're in a thousand pieces shattered onto the floor. Which one? Their question was dripping with pride. Who's the greatest in your kingdom? But Jesus directs, redirects the question. He speaks of humility and he speaks of service. While people pursue status, Kingdom people are to embrace humility, verses 2 to 4. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That word turn is important to understand. It could mean literally turn, physically turn one direction to another. In this context, it means convert, unless you're converted. It's the same word used in Revelation when it talks about this water that will be turned to blood. Something changed into something else. It's what I was saying at the beginning, that the kind of humility that God talks about isn't something we can just create in ourselves. We can't hit the light switch and become the kind of humble person like a child that Jesus is calling us to be. We have to be changed into it. And that word turn is in the passive voice, which means the subject is being acted upon, as in you can't do it yourself, you're acted upon. We need to be changed. We need to be turned. We need our hearts and our minds changed by the living God, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, the renewing of our mind. We need to be turned, converted, to have the humility he talks about. What kind of humility is he talking about? 
Well, he does, he does an object lesson, which I believe he did this a lot. Because I think that when he, would, when he would bring his teaching to life, he would do it by using his environment. And so, for example, when he would do the parable of the sower, I, I can bet you that there were people sowing or planting on the nearby hillside or something. It's like he, he sees people planting. He's like, the kingdom of heaven is like a sower who goes out into the field. He uses his environment. He brings his teaching to life. If I really felt bold right now, I could call a kid up here, but I'm not going to do that today. Maybe another time. He brought a kid. He, said, he saw a kid, an infant. The word child means infant. Young, young kid. And he calls the kid over, sets this very young boy in front of the disciples, and says, you need to turn and be like children. In the question of status, how can we be great? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He goes and he asks for this young boy who had no status at the time, puts him in the midst of the disciples and says, be like this. Later in Matthew 20, he's going to say, the greatest among you is going to be your servant. There's somebody else that had no status. Stop trying to climb the ladder of worldly success and power. Be like this child. Some of you with children might be thinking, oh, okay, you don't know. You don't know, my kid. They're not always Christ-like, and I'm not saying that they are. However, he's very specific in the way he says to be like a child. Another example of this is 1 Corinthians 14. Paul will say, be like infants in evil. In evil, be like infants. There's probably no infant who is planning world domination, even though I'm a bit suspicious of one or two of your, of your kids. But probably, okay, probably no infant is planning, how do I get to the top of the hierarchy of power and status in the world? And here in this example, Jesus is specific. He says, in humility, be like this kid. This kid has indifference towards the world's power and status and fighting for fame in that way. Be like this child in humility, in dependence. In no, this kid knows he needs everything. He's not afraid to ask. Mom, dad, I need this, I need this. I need help, 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 help. He knows that. And in humility and lowliness, he calls us to be like that, willing to ask, knowing we need help. I think in some ways, the Lord has designed life itself to display our need for humility. How many here have earned everything that you have, everything that you've done, everything that you have acquired over the time? How many of you have done it all by yourself? Anybody? <laughs> no, right? Because for multiple years, you were utterly helpless. Somebody had to keep you alive for years or else you wouldn't be here. It's, it's true. Now, just for fun, there are some examples of creatures who are born independent, but it's not us. But let me give you a couple examples. Most birds, they do receive parental care, but there's a kind of bird called megapods, a group of chicken-like birds that fly within the first 24 hours that they're born. That's pretty independent. First day, they're flying away from mom and dad. Lizards, they deposit their eggs, cover them, and then immediately forget them. And the kids are raised on, you know, fend for themselves. Many insects do receive parental care, but not moths or butterflies. They lay their eggs and they leave their offspring to fight the good fight for life and survival on their own. And they get no help. But not humans. And just to bring it to our imagination for a second, I know there's some infants here, but here's two infants. Anyone know who they are? You might recognize them. That's Nick and Krista Ferugio. And they're not even here, they're actually doing youth. 
but this just goes to show if you send me stuff, I might show everybody. Um, and the, the whole point of it here is that they needed tons of help for a very long time, for years. They could not survive on their own. They needed help, constant dependence. All right, let's move. I'd like to stay there, but let's move on. Humans need a lot of help. And Jesus is saying, in order to rise to greatness, we have to lower ourselves in humility. While power in itself isn't a bad thing, it can be used in status to serve and to help other people, serve for the interests of other people, power in itself isn't bad. But if we're in it for ourselves, for selfish ambition, which is the natural bent of people pursuing status, he doesn't just say, well, you'll be lower, lower in the kingdom of heaven. He's basically, he says to them, you won't enter at all. If you're caught in that power struggle and that natural bent of people to try to raise themselves up the ladder, push other people down, live that life of pride which got us in the situation we are of the fall in the first place, don't expect to enter the kingdom at all. The pursuits of the world will not end well. So let's look at some of the promises then of the kingdom, verses 5 to 6. Verse 5 to 6. I see in these two verses two promises. The first one has to do with Promises concerning serving people, the secret of serving people. But then there's another promise, a scary one, a troubling one, that has to do with the severity of abusing God's people. So let's look at the more comforting one first in verse 5. The secret of serving people. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So that word child, same word for infant, but the, the, the next verse, Jesus is going to use a different phrase in verse 6, little ones. And so we see him now lumping together children, infants, but also little ones was used back in Matthew 10 to refer to disciples, followers of Christ. He's now lumping together infants, children with the children of God into one big group. And he says, when, you're ser- when you serve them, when you serve infants, children, children of God at large, know that in a real sense you are serving Jesus himself. We can look for him. People are made in the image of God. And when we serve people, we are in a true sense serving Jesus himself. And what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about Jesus and his, and his character and his humility? That he, the owner, the creator the one with all power, would identify so closely to the vulnerable, to the weak, to the helpless, that when we serve them, we're serving him. That's the kind of humility that it shows us. The secret to serving God's people. Don't forget, you're serving God himself. But here comes the warning. The severity of abusing God's people is in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones, same word used back in Matthew 10, talk about followers, disciples of Jesus. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him or her to have a great millstone fastened around his or her neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoa. The Lord knows that ambition, pride, that attitude of thinking excessively about ourselves and a high opinion about ourselves, pushing other people down in the process, not caring if we're hurting them, damaging them, causing them even to sin because of our pride in different ways. He said it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck 
and be tossed into the depth of the sea if you live that kind of life without turning to him. What was a millstone? <laughs> millstone was a circular stone used for grinding grain. They were, they were usually hundreds or thousands of pounds, depending on which kind. But he says great millstone. So we're talking to one to two thousand pound circular stone around your neck. And he said it would be better to have that around your neck and be cast into the depth of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to sin. It would be better. So what does that tell you about the other option of what actually is going to happen for those who live that life without turning to God, without repentance, whole life, living a life of pride, hurting people, maybe in ways we don't even understand or acknowledge. While Jesus was compassionate, kind, caring, children were drawn to him, people were drawn to him, compassionate, all these things, he also was not Mr. Rogers. He's not Big Bird. He says, do not mess with his people. Do not mess with them. <laughs> a life with no regard to our sin, causing other people to sin, is a life that's heading headfirst into hell. And we've, we've learned some things about hell in Matthew. But here, just one, one truth about hell we learn in this passage is that Jesus says it's worse than having a millstone tied around your neck and being cast into the depths of the sea. And that's all I need to hear about it for now. So, the path to life involves a fight. Fighting sin. Not fighting for fame. Not fighting for status. Not feeding our pride. But fighting sin. And if we're not fighting it, and if we're not conquering it, through his power, it's fighting and it is conquering us. And it doesn't lead to a good place. In verses 7 through 9, this path to life that involves a fight, we see a world of temptation in verse 7, and then we see warnings to cut ties with sin in verses 8 through 9. We see a world of temptation in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So temptations are going to be part of our life here on earth. They're, we're bombarded with them. We, back in Genesis, and then in the life of Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness, and then towards the end of the Bible in 1 John, we see three examples that show us these categories of temptations, that they're going to fall, all of them, all temptations are going to fall into three categories. Temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride, there's that word again, the pride of life. And every single temptation you can think of, and we could spend a whole bunch of time writing out and putting categories, all the, different, all the different ways we're tempted into those three categories, but know that our flesh, desires we have, our eyes, things we want to get, things we want to receive, things we want to chase after that isn't God, our pride wanting to constantly put other people down and just think about ourselves and elevate ourselves above other people, those things are constantly knocking at our doors. We're in a world of temptation. But Jesus says those are necessary. They're necessary because we live in a fallen world, because of Genesis 3, because of the fall, because of, because of opportunities to grow, because of discipline, because of all kinds of reasons. They're necessary. But he also says, woe to the one by whom temptation comes. So while they're expected, don't lose sight that there's culpability for those who fall into them. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. 
to not fall into temptation because there's responsibility for that. There's culpability for that. While Jesus was always meant to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world, there was responsibility on the hands of Judas for handing him over. While he was always meant before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God would be slain to forgive his people. And yet, the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite at the time, and as Jesus will say multiple times, of mankind in general, us, our sins for putting him on the cross, there's responsibility. There's culpability for those things. And so he gives us a warning to cut ties, to fight, no matter the cost. Look at verses 8 through 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. Can it get any more drastic language than that? Can he warn us any more of the dangers of sin and not fighting against it? Now, just in case, just in case, <laughs> there, have been, there have been unfortunate incidents in the past where someone has read this verse and a Christian who wants to be really serious about their faith, no matter what the Bible says, I'm going to do it, and they have removed limbs, and that is not what he's trying to tell you to do. Can I just tell you that? Please don't take it literally. It's hyperbolic, exaggerated language, but don't, don't, don't minimize it just because he's saying to not literally do that. We know from Matthew 5, 12, 15, it's the matter of the heart. It's a matter of the mind. And he's saying we have to, no matter what the cost, fight against those things that are leading us into and falling into temptation. No matter what the cost, no matter what the action, no matter how drastic, no matter how much you might have to lose in the process. Even if it's something that might be fine for other people, you know in your past that it's something you've either abused or overdone and you shouldn't be part of that. At least maybe just for a season. Whatever drastic necessary action you have to take to cut ties with sin. What are the sins that, that cling so closely to you that the author of Hebrews talks about? And what are you doing about it? Do you know that Jesus takes sin deadly seriously? Do we? It takes humility. It takes humility to ask. It takes humility to ask people to help you. People that are fallen and mess up in their own ways. We need accountability of other people to help us. Can we ask them? Are we willing to see that there is an end time coming of God who will bless and who will judge us? And that in the meantime, it's worthy of our attention and it's worthy of self-imposed limitation if necessary. Even if it costs us something. I'm going to read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, the half-educated, timid, simple-minded believer who to escape the snares of false science, worldly cunning, and courtly pride has cut himself or herself off from what people may call advantages will in the end prove to have been far wiser than those who risk their soul for the sake of what the world imagines to be necessary to human perfecting. He's saying it might cost you something. You might not have the same advantages in some areas of your life when you give something up or when you get away from something that you know is causing you to sin. But in the long term, 
in what truly matters, even if it costs you something physically now, the eternal spiritual repercussions are worthy of that limitation. It takes humility, and it can take action. Are you able to ask people for help? But please don't just ask people. Because like we said, this kind of humility God's talking about is not something we can muster up or create in ourselves. We have to ask God for it. And that takes humility as well. And if you can't yet ask him, ask him for the humility to be able to ask. Do all that you can, but understand you can't do it on your own. In the same way that you can't perform heart surgery on yourself, you can't perform perform spiritual surgery on yourself either. You need God for that. I'm going to read you a quote from a book called Uncommon Ground. Being a Christian is not ultimately about mastery or control of ourselves, others, or the world, but embracing vulnerability, dependence, and love that comes from living in the love of Jesus, embraced by the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit as God's beloved children and resting there. Turn to Jesus, the humble one, the king who humbled himself to the point of becoming a servant, humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins, all of those mistakes, all of those atrocities we've done that we might think are big or small, but in God's eyes are worthy of a punishment worse than a millstone tied around our necks and being cast into the depth of the sea. But you know, Jesus took that millstone and Jesus was cut off from God for us and our sin. He did that in our place so that we can be right with God, so that we can have that relationship with God as his children, so that we can be the children of God. We started by looking at a couple verses in Philippians 2 about humility, and I think it's fitting to end the message today looking at the rest of that passage in Philippians 2. So as the band makes their way up, I'm going to finish reading that passage in Philippians chapter 2. Here's what the Word of God says in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of mankind and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.